Welcome back to Check Displeased, the show where we talk about it chapter two for 40 minutes and then hit record. Uh, I plead the fifth. I'm I'm secret and tomato. Yeah, and uh, we're secret and tomato, and uh, we're reading through Check Please to try to figure out what's going on there. Today we are going to be talking about the comic. Let's open up the outline. 1.3, The Coaches, which was originally posted to Ngozi's Tumblr on the 26th of June, 2013. This was two days after the Blackhawks won the Stanley Cup. So presumably that was happening as this strip was being drawn. And now that we've gotten through that part of hockey history... I don't know what I'm going to bring up in terms of context for this podcast because all I care about is the Blackhawks winning the Stanley Cup. And after that, who knows what could have happened? Anyway, what's up with you? I like hockey. I like watching hockey, but I am completely unable to stick any actual hockey details into my memory and have them stay accurate. So I'll never be able to get you any context, but I sure can tell you my feelings about the strip, I guess. I can only give context because I've made a point of trying to find it. Do you want to summarize the comic? Happily, sure. We're once again in, uh, we're suddenly in color, or not suddenly, Flo was in color, but now we're back in a strip that's in color, which the first two strips online are not. And we're back in Biddy's room, which is a little more detailed, including Senor Bun's, I think, first little little cameo in the corner. Uh, and Biddy's addressing his vlog and explaining that when he was playing in his small town Georgia co-ed club hockey team, checking was not allowed. But now in real college hockey, checking is allowed and, quote, I'm so ready. I can't do a proper accent, so... You've got to look to Secret for that. We then see the team out on the ice. <laughs> Jack saying, fiddle, heads up. And uh, Biddy going into full freak out mode and collapsing on the ice while everyone sort of tries to check on him and make sure he's okay. Everybody starts commenting on this, um, you know, like a fainting goat. Uh, Ransom and Holster have a little fun banter. Um, Shitty gets in on it. It's great. And then we see the coaches in their office, presumably, watching Biddy's play. And I presume this is before he got offered the position, but I'm not actually sure chronologically what's happening here. Um, And the coaches are remarking that Biddy is fast as hell and has some damn soft hands, but he's pretty scared of getting hit. And apparently he has some, quote, goddamn spinorama. So he's sort of pirouetting across the ice. Uh, nine, ten, eleven times for strip closes. That's it. That's what happens. I believe that what's happening is Jack says, how'd this guy get recruited? And then whichever coach he's speaking to, I guess it's Murray based on the hair. I don't know. Doesn't matter. Who cares? He says uh, that Biddy sent in good tape. And then I think this is effectively like out of chronology flash to them looking at the tape Biddy sent in. Yeah, I mean, I think that basically covers it. That's kind of all that's happening in this strip. Yeah, so some things I noticed while I was looking at this. I feel like 
the strip is just kind of like settling into backgrounds. Something that's interesting is that, yeah, what the, the thing we would eventually come to know as Senior Bun, Biddy's fucking stuffed rabbit, which is, I'll just be honest, one of my least favorite things about this whole comic. I hate that fucking rabbit. It kind of looks like a bear here. But you can tell that she's trying to, like, fill out the detail of his room. He's also getting moved in a little more. It looks very college-y, like he's got a bulletin board and his shoe rack is in, like, a stupid place. And he has what I think is a Georgia state flag because people are always bringing their state flag to college. Like those sort of twinkly Christmas dorm room lights that certainly I didn't have up in my dorm but I did have in my childhood bedroom. And then if you look at the third panel where you see the interior of the ice rink, you can see that like, I think her backgrounds will get a lot better as the comic goes around. This feels very like straight line and kind of like right angly to me. You can sort of sense that this was somebody using, I mean, I guess she's doing it digitally so she wouldn't be using a ruler, but it feels very much like somebody taking a sort of vanishing point and then building on a background that way. That said, I still think it looks really good. Uh, I, I think it really sets a feel for the room and kind of gives you a sense of the space that you're in, that the characters are in. Yeah, I don't know. I love the way that the light falls. I think that even though like her skills are developing, you can see that this is a world that feels real. I was also trying to figure out those banners hanging over the ice. I was wondering if those were maybe like achievements or championships maybe that Samwell hockey teams had won or are they just sort of like banners for the other the other ECAC schools my assumption was that they were Samwell related because they're Samwell colors but I I'm not sure whether they would be just pro Samwell like it could just be pictures of like fucking welly or whatever right I don't actually know oh Oh, I'm so glad you asked. Welly is Samwell's official mascot, I think, right? A giant well on legs. I presume they're not pictures of Welly. When I, every, every school I've been at has been part of an athletic association. So like my, both my undergrad and my grad degree were in the same conference. It was the University Athletic Conference, and, or the University Athletic Association. And those schools would always either in the gym or in some permanent place have the banners of all of the constituent members of the conference like hung up somewhere and they they weren't like the colors of the individual school i think it guess it's like a stylistic choice anyway i don't know i think this is really really nitpicky but i'm wondering if it was meant to just sort of like be further set dressing to sort of you know people are familiar with that style of athletic setting or if she was implying that like Maybe the school was a little better at hockey than they seem to be in future strips. I don't know. I just appreciate it as a detail. And because there's something wrong with me, I sat here thinking about it. I agree, actually. Like, I think one of the strengths of the strip, even though this is early on in what she would later say is one of her favorite things to draw, like later on, at some point she was talking about how she really enjoyed, and Gozi, I mean, really enjoys drawing backgrounds. And you can see it. 
Um, they're really architectural, really detailed, really specific. Like she's really great at building places that feel, like you said, real. And even though this is early on, I, I agree. I think those banners, I mean, my, my suspicion is that this is based on a picture taken in an actual arena somewhere, right? And that she, there were banners and whatever picture that she was using as a, as a resource. You know what I mean? But the, I, I go to school now and the school I attend is... Uh, not what my undergrad was. My undergrad was actually part of the Big Ten. It was a whole really big deal. This school mm, does not hold that much that much feeling about its athletics. So I, I don't see nearly as much of it strewn about. Yeah, none of the schools I've been to previously had feeling about its athletics. Like the UAA is D3. So it's not like something very prominent but still, I mean, I don't know, maybe if it comes up in like future episodes, we can get into sort of like the politics or the metrics of like how, you know, undergrad level athletics programs work at colleges. Cause it is interesting and it is sort of like a major component of this story. I'm currently at a at a, a university in a, another country where, like, I don't think there is sports. Like, literally, I just think that's not part of it. Like, there is no equivalent of the NCAA. So, I don't know. I can't go check now. These first few strips all do... I, I wouldn't say that they're moving a story along. I don't think that either she... I'm not sure if she knew what the story was yet, but I as a reader certainly don't know what the story is yet, right? Like the story for me is there's a situation happening where this kid who used to do sort of figure skating is now in a hockey team and he's small and bright eyed and he's surrounded by like lunks who make jokes. Like this is sort of all that I, all that I see so far, right? But that's compelling to me. And so for, for me, these first few strips do, rather than move a story along, it's kind of like, build a portrait from different angles. And for me, this is what this strip is doing. It's giving me another angle. It's showing me these guys on the ice, not while talking about like shitty sick flow, right? But actually doing something vaguely hockey related. It, <laughs> it tells me that, uh, it tells me that Biddy is scared of getting hit, but has made it onto this like relatively impressive question mark hockey team although like whether it is or isn't I don't know it's supposed to tell us also about Biddy's skill what he's good at what he's not good at what he's scared of and who he is on the ice um, and places him in a very particular role as sort of like the guy with soft hands right yeah so put put a pin in that because I made some notes on Biddy here that I would bring us back to because I think that feeds into some sort of larger overarching questions about the comic, like all of Check, Please, not this one strip. What I kind of started theorizing as I was looking at this was that we have sort of, I think, within these early comics, Shitty, Ransom, and Holster as emblematic of like hockey bro culture. And then Jack seemingly is sort of more emblematic of hockey as a sport because he's kind of still like a team functionary. I think last, you know, in the last episode episode, I said that he seemed like a functionary of the hockey team. And I, I think that sort of continues to be the case here. 
um, I guess we sort of learn a little bit about Shitty because, you know, in regard to their fainting goat conversation, he has like a specific reference point for what they're discussing. So it's sort of like he's able to memorize terminology and he has a bit of a like, you know, sort of referential academic way of thinking about things. I think this is maybe like the first indication that Holster is really into pop culture. His reference of this is why we need movie night, I think that's kind of in line with the character that's built out for him maybe more so in the tweets and the other extras than in the strip, but I know that that's one of the things we're supposed to know about Holster is that he's really into like movies and TV. I really like Ransom line, uh, oh, I'd kill myself. I eat some goat poison. I don't know if that says anything specific about Ransom, but it just, I don't know, I like it. I think it's funny. Good banter, good banter, boys. Something I would point out is that none of them actually seem concerned about Bitty. <laughs> Yeah. No, I'm serious. Like, I, I started thinking about it, and I read through this, and literally the only person who appears to be concerned about Biddy is the coach. I guess it's it's Murray. Not that it really fucking matters. Ask him if he's okay. He seems pretty traumatized, and, like, you know, the boys are making jokes about it. None of them ask him if he's, like, all right. And I guess, you know, that's possibly because they, like, don't know him well enough yet to realize this is part of a larger problem. But I think partly it's also, like, this comic just hasn't developed yet in the direction of, like, you know, this sort of, like, are you okay? Like, checking in on, like, everybody's mental and emotional capacity like, I don't think it's gone in that direction yet. So it's just like, yeah, why would they give a shit? But I actually don't know that that's so much ever present in the comic. Like, yes, it is to some extent. And certainly Biddy takes it on himself. I mean, okay, so I have all these, like, character theories as to why Biddy is like this. But certainly at times, Biddy takes it on himself to ask other people or check up on other people or do things for other people to make sure they're okay, right? But I'm actually not sure how much of that sort of, like softness or whatever tilde asterisk soft asterisk tilde uh quality is present in the comic itself and how much of that played out because of fandom expectations of different characters because for me i have to say that the timbre and tone and a lot of fandom work is like quite different at least than this part of the comic, and I think maybe also latter parts of the comic. So I'm not sure. We have an ask in our ask. No, it's a reblog. Uh, we have a reblog that's basically asking us about how much fandom we're going to get into. So maybe we'll expound on it a little more there. But I just presume we'll talk about fandom a lot because I think this is a case where the fandom bears down upon the work. And I think we're going to get to a point at which it's like, difficult not to talk about the fandom. Yeah, I agree. But I do feel like a lot of this comic ends up being about, are you your best self? And like, how can I help you? And like, people supporting each other. Like, we just read a bunch of strips where, you know, basically the entire hockey team has to like, get Biddy to finish his fucking thesis. In the end of year two, they're all like buying him an oven so they can all like bake together. And it's all this like very sort of 
you know, everyone's like mutual self-care community maybe feeling. But yeah, I mean, here it's just like, you know, Biddy fucking fainted on, you know, the ice and he looks kind of like a little disaster. Yeah, no, none of the masterpieces okay. I guess because that wouldn't be funny and this comic is still a comedy. Yeah. And I, I also think it's quite interesting, actually, now that... So I've been looking at this panel of the Fainting Goats discussion for, like, a few minutes now, and I'm just thinking about Jack not only not asking if Biddy's okay, but being like, why is this person on this team? Why have you done this to me, to the coaches? I figured I would bring this in maybe a few episodes down the line when Jack's uh, captaining comes to the forefront a little more, but, like... He is the captain of the team. Like, it's kind of his job to understand this shit. His, his function is to collectively help the team win. So I suppose if I were him, I'd also want to know. Oh, yeah. I just think it's really, I mean, it's clearly like as a comedy point, but I also think just as a character point, it's very interesting that at this point, he is not only not engaging in like fun goat banter, but also actively like, why is this kid here? How did he get recruited? As Biddy is presumably like crawling to the bench, right? I don't know. I, there's just something about that, which is so, so different from the kind of like Biddy central behavior modifier that happens throughout throughout later parts of the comic. I, I don't know. It is a bit weird, actually, that, like, after the sort of bitty beginning part here, he's, yeah, he's not in this panel. Like, he's just on the floor, and none of them are looking at him, and that's not where the action is. Yeah, I mean, I suppose to a certain extent you could read this as... Jack, he he thinks of himself as like important and skilled and serious. So he's not going to participate in the conversation that the rest of the team is having. He's going to go directly to the coaches. This is also something that I think we see throughout Jack's sort of like captaincy, right? Is this, well, we'll have to see. We'll have to see if it's still true. But I remember that he goes on a journey. And I, I guess we'll have to see whether it really happens or not. Um, I will say about the coaches, um, so there's two of them, Coach Murray and Coach Hall, and this comic is called The Coaches. Question for you, Tomato, why is this comic called The Coaches? My real honest guess is that Ngozi didn't know where she was going and was just like, let me throw all these characters out here. Look, here are the coaches. That's part of a team. It's important. Here they are. But I don't really know because it's not like we spend much time with them or care about them or their opinions or their lives throughout the rest of the comic, other than as sort of like peripheral figures. I happen to know, based on one tweet somewhere, that Coach Murray has a daughter. That's completely irrelevant because who the fuck is Coach Murray? I could not tell you like anything about him. Yeah, I, I think I think you may be right. My guess is that it's possible that she had an amorphous idea of like these characters were going to be around enough that perhaps it was worth introducing them and naming them. Maybe just for the sake of verisimilitude, it would have seemed really weird to be depicting a hockey team and not know who the coaches were. I think she does this a lot, where she gives a character an introduction, 
And then that character maybe makes like background appearances, but never actually contributes anything to the story. Really big example that I can think of that we'll get to very early in uh, the second half of year one. Yeah, I think I think she does this repeatedly where she like sets up a big character entrance and then it's just like, well, this character does nothing, adds nothing. Like, why are they here? I don't think with the coaches it becomes obstructive, but she is really bad at practicing what you would call economy of characters, which is only introducing and forcing the reader to keep track of the characters who are central to the plot. I also think that there are kinds of stories where that's not important, right? Like there are kinds of stories, especially in experimental writing, which is something I'm into, where something like economy of character doesn't really matter or you're trying to prove a point, which actually requires you to subvert that expectation. If she were doing something with these entrances or I think trying to make some kind of point about them, then I would actually really be much more willing to entertain all of them. But this is not a super experimental text. It's basically following like sports film slash romance comedy plot arc, neither of which tend towards the experimental. Although this particular introduction isn't that frustrating compared to like later ones, it is setting up a pattern that I guess I'm curious about. Actually, I'm curious how, I'm curious, we, we can't know this, right? Like, and I don't, I don't really like I think Ngozi is a good writer. I love to speculate about the comic itself, but I don't really like speculating about her. It just doesn't seem, it's not really my jam. But I am curious about like what she was envisioning this in conversation with at the beginning of the comic versus at the end. Because I would say by the end, it's very much a story about romance. But at the beginning, as we discussed before, it seems to be a story about hockey. And so I'm wondering what kinds of like movies or um, books or... I don't know, incredibly boring hockey autobiographies that she was thinking about when she started building this up. Because then I think kind of coaches like would play a more intense role. They're, they often do in sports narratives. I think you're right about that. And to that, I would add, if this were potentially going to be just a sort of episodic, whenever she felt like it, gag-based daily life tales of a funny college hockey team where the main character is a fish out of water. That's the sort of scenario where maybe, yeah, you'd want to like introduce a couple coaches because it's conceivable that at some point you'd want to structure some gags around them. Or, you know, you want to have a relatively wide cast of characters because you want to pull people in to basically tell whatever joke you want to tell. And lots and lots of, like, comics do that. It's not weird or wrong. Like, almost every webcomic I have ever read has had a relatively wide cast of characters, a dozen or dozens, who just kind of circle in and out of the story based on who's needed for this arc or that joke. This is going to mark me as a huge-ass dork, but one of my favorite comics ever is Doonesbury. And, uh, you know, I can see you laughing. I can see you laughing at me. That's fine. Laugh at me. I can take it. 
But I just spent 40 minutes talking about it, colon, chapter two to you. So, like, really, I can't cast stones here. Tell me about Doonesbury. Oh, I've got, I've got, listen, I just want to be perfectly clear. I have not ever read any sort of fan-related product about Doonesbury. But I bring it up because it famously has a cast of, like, dozens of people. And there are arcs in the comic. It's a political comic. It's a left-leaning political comic that follows the lives of a group of friends starting in college in the 70s. They're going to actually a very Samwell-like college. And they also live in a sort of house-type situation in a a commune on uh, Walden Pond at Walden College. And um, they sort of go through the arc of American history from the 70s up until now after graduating from college. And as they go through life, they meet a bunch of people. So by the time the comic gets current, I think it's been on hiatus for a while, it is, you know, a cast of like dozens of people and there are story arcs and you just kind of cycle in the people who are necessary for that arc and because it's episodic it doesn't really matter if you have never seen this character before because they're integral to the story that's being told over these four weeks and then after four weeks it's going to be a new story but also if you are familiar with the comic then yeah, maybe the interrelationships between all these different goddamn characters and like who is whose child or grandchild is important or meaningful to you or it enhances your enjoyment of what you're reading. But it's not like strictly necessary. Sometimes in fucking Doonesbury, characters go away for like decades. A web of a zillion characters is not unusual for a comic it's kind of part of like a certain kind of comic writing. Less so a graphic novel, but a comic that tells episodic stories. Yes, very much so. And I feel like the beginning of Check, Please has a lot more of the latter than it does in common with a graphic novel. So... Oh, I agree. I think that's part of the pacing also, um, because the pacing the pacing dramatically shifts throughout the comic as well. And the pacing here of all these introductions and all these kind of one-liners is very much like newspaper comic. It's possible, you know, we, we keep sort of dancing around this idea of like, you know, when did check please shift and when did it become something else and when did it change? Maybe part of the change is that it was becoming more of a graphic novel being drafted and published in increments rather than as a singular work but in terms of like the coaches it's like yeah like these coaches don't matter the fact that there's a strip named after them is completely irrelevant uh they will come up like in certain points especially much later in the comic when she's doing kind of like montages of what's going on in biddy's life you know you'll maybe see like a panel where he's like standing next to a coach i guess the one thing we haven't really talked about here at least characterize, is uh, Biddy. And you mentioned Spinorama earlier. I uh, went online and uh, according to Wiktionary, it is the action of spinning a full turn while skating with the puck in order to protect it from opponents. 
And um, interestingly enough, spinoramas have been banned in the NHL in shootouts and on penalty shots since September 2014. So while this comic was being written, that was something that you could do in the NHL, but it's not anymore. I don't think there are any rules about it in the NCAA. But yeah, it's basically somebody who's like deftly sort of, you know, using their body to kind of like turn away from the side of play rather than skating through. I also wrote down the definition of soft hands. Basically what it means technically is that uh, if you're gripping your hockey stick in two hands, that if your bottom hand is loose on the stick, or maybe if both hands are loose on the stick, but still in control, you'll be able to get better puck handling because you'll be more deftly able to maneuver. And it's a fast game. Uh, that that description we read um, out of the forward from hashtag hockey on the last episode, where she, you know, where Ngozi makes the comment about you know a, a piece of vulcanized rubber flying around and it's fast and exciting. It's like yeah, hockey play is really like that. It's extremely dynamic and being dexterous and able to sort of maneuver yourself and the puck around the ice and into and out of sort of clashes with opposing players and sometimes your own players is part of being really skilled at hockey. And I think at least in what I've encountered in terms of the minimal amount of hockey uh, RPS I've read and a lot of the check please fic I've read, it seems to be commonly believed that you can sort of be one of two things as a hockey player. You can be skilled and highly technical or you can just be a big strong man and if you happen to be both that's the ticket but um biddy is obviously only one of them he's also fast the coaches say yeah i think it's it's pretty obvious that he's uh he's skilled and technical he has a playing style that is uh very like agile and leaf and that seems to be why they want him on this hockey team yeah i i will say that i have seen that dichotomy between sort of like gritty players and like agile players i have seen that in actual hockey media as well although i'm not you know deep deep in hockey world i just like like hockey and watch it sometimes um but i i I don't like follow hockey particularly closely so i do think that it's i do think that that sense is rooted in reality and i think there's some qualities of it in the text of check please also although there's like not that much hockey talk actually in check please i guess you know, compared to to some other media about hockey. Biddy definitely is not a player who, for example, will be jumping into particularly high contact play, as is evidenced um, by by the fact that he like falls right over. Yeah, I mean, I think the coaches are basically describing that he is a player who avoids physical confrontation. And listen, I, I like hockey very much. I have a team that I'm fond of. You can probably guess which one at this point. I have, throughout my adulthood, always made a point to watch some games and attend some games and follow my team when they're in the playoffs or in the hunt. But I am not enough of a technical hockey nerd, as are some people truly, to speak with much authority 
about how things are in hockey. However, as a quasi-knowledgeable, interested observer, why is it so bad that he just, like, attempts to avoid physical contact? I know people will make the point that, like, it's hockey. You can't avoid physical contact. However, I feel like... Yeah, why, why would you not want to avoid getting hit? Like, why would you want to, like, throw yourself into a bunch of, like, men who are potentially going to injure you? It seems pretty common sense to me. Uh, well, as someone who has played a contact sport, now that I'm thinking about context, I'm thinking about the NHL's relationship to, like, concussions as a thing that exists, which used to be concussions don't exist, let's not talk about this, Till now, concussions do exist, according to the NHL, or so this seems to me as someone who's sort of like outside of that world of like deep hockey following. Um, But this was written at a time when concussions and other kinds of injuries of that sort were not really being talked about or just were just beginning to be talked about in a more in-depth way, as I recall. Does that sound right to you? I know that it's been sort of a, a rapid acceleration of the acknowledgement that playing a contact sport can cause you serious, long-lasting repercussions. I definitely think that it seems very odd that a sport where part of the fucking sport is basically grabbing a dude and wailing on him would have far, far fewer evident examples of players suffering long-term damage than in football. Seems quite bizarre to me. I've seen all sorts of excuses made for why that might be. And I, again, I just don't know enough about like the politics of the actual league to really speculate on why that might be. I'm sure there's somebody around who knows a lot more about this than I do. But what I do know is that hockey is an intensely physical, intensely grueling sport. And part of what makes it such a den of toxic masculinity is that the reality of it is, I think, rarely discussed. Maybe this is because, at least in the U.S. market, which obviously is like what I'm familiar with, hockey of the big four uh, major sports leagues is the least popular one, like by a lot. So it just doesn't get the same kind of media coverage and media attention as the other three. So it hasn't had to have like the public reckoning that football has. It's a natural impulse to not want to be injured and a natural impulse to not want to be hit. I think wanting to avoid being caused pain are, are not crazy unusual reactions. And I think for me, at least personally, one of the questions that's always been sort of floating around the periphery for me about check please is like, why are any of these people doing this? And now for some people, seems like, you know what, they're a type and that's the type of person who would play hockey. Makes sense. Can't question it. I think when we, a few strips from now, get a little bit more about Jack, we'll have probably a really fruitful conversation along these lines. But I think, you know, with with Biddy as well, I 
do sort of feel like it's never really adequately covered in this comic. Why does this kid want to play this sport at this school? Right. I agree. I mean, I do have theories about it, right? Which are in part based on the text and in part based on the fact that I played slash played and will hopefully play again roller derby, even though I am not a particularly like, I did not grow up playing contact sports and so on, right? So I have my own specific relationship to con- like a pretty a pretty intense contact sport. Um, also on skates, although a different kind of skates, um, which has certain sort of things in common, I think, with a, with a sport like hockey. So of course I have my own perspective. Um, but I think that this is something that's often true throughout the comic. I think Ngozi often makes comments about Biddy, which are not necessarily obviously substantiated in the text or only become substantiated after she says it. I also think that Biddy's motivations are opaque to himself and because he, or, well, this would be my argument. This is my reading of the character, right? He's somewhat opaque to himself. And I don't know if he's meant to be written that way. In fact, I don't think he is meant to be written that way a lot of the time, but that's how I interpret what I read. And so for me, that maybe that's part of why that's not as present in the text because he's allegedly presenting things to us via the vlog. And so if Biddy doesn't have access to that information, how could he tell us why he wants to, to play the sport? But I also think there's enough in the comic as we go throughout, which we can begin to make guesses about why he wants to play the sport. I don't know. I mean, I know what my guesses are or some of them. I, I think I know what some of your guesses probably are too. And I don't know that those guesses are like in keeping with what Ngozi wanted to present. And I definitely don't think they're necessarily in keeping with the reading that some other fans have. I think that's a good segue into what I've sort of marked down as, I don't know, kind of like the overarching question I have about this, uh, this particular strip, which is, um, is this the start of the plot? We now have the end of the comic. We have some more information about what's going on with Biddy vis-a-vis checking than, you know, I had at least the first time I read this strip. So, like, I don't know. I mean, is this the plot? You you seem to think not when we were at the top of the conversation. But um, my argument would be that um, it is. The vlog, the thing that's sort of giving the giving the individual strip it's it's framing device brings out the question of checking somebody actually in the same reblog where somebody asked us uh about how much of the fandom we discussed somebody asked me to clarify what i mean about um something i said previously about the beginning the middle and the end um well i mean this is a strip that has a beginning in the middle and an end uh the beginning is biddy saying you know or implying to the reader he's afraid of checking and you know the middle is showing biddy being afraid of checking and the end is the the coaches saying he's scared he's scared of getting hit and i think you know yeah that basically like raises a question and you know you get some evidence in the middle of the story and then yeah the conclusion is yeah he's he's scared of getting hit and like i said now we've got the end of the comic i'll turn it back to you because i'm getting sick of hearing my own voice is this the start of the plot of check please 
is this the beginning of Check Please's plot? I guess it is. I guess it is because because you're right. It does introduce the kind of bookending concept of I'm afraid of checking, I fall over. Oh, I love to knock out my teeth on illegal hits and get Jack like real hot about my missing <laughs> my missing tooth. Um, which we can discuss that at another juncture, I guess. But I guess it is, but it but I'm frustrated by that because one of my problems of this comic is thinking about its symmetry or lack thereof. Like it does not have a particularly strong narrative symmetry in its pacing, even if in its themes it does. So yeah, I guess this is the beginning of the plot, but I'm frustrated by it because I think it could have been introduced in a stronger way. Like for example, not in a strip called The Coaches. The second to last comic is Biddy uh, being proposed to at Center Ice in this very room and uh, he, he, he faints and, uh, you know, Jack, Jack makes a joke about it. That, I think, is more of like a reference. I think it's just, it's just like, you know, acknowledging something that happened earlier in the comic merely to like raise the point that it happened earlier in the comic. I think yeah, this great. thread of, you know, checking and Biddy's checking journey gets lost or obscured at many points along the way, but I wonder if we'll see it crop up maybe more than I recall. I remember it coming up somewhat regularly, but somewhat regularly has, you know, some kind of qualifier around it because I think a lot of things that come up somewhat regularly in this, in this comic come up and then are dropped and then come up and then are dropped, but like not in a way that I personally find narratively really satisfying. So yeah, I'm curious about that too. I do remember coming up multiple times, but not in a way that I necessarily felt excited about. I guess we'll just have to follow this and sort of see how we feel as it goes along. But to me, the question of the checking is like at a certain point, it's just like, why? I don't know. I guess Biddy just has this like, even though he's a lazy piece of shit, as I'm sure we'll figure out soon enough, I think Biddy just like has this, you know, real fucking American Puritan work ethic where, you know, if you can't do one thing, by God, trying to overcome that one thing and achieve this one meaningless thing will become the thing that drives your life for four years or however long it takes. And I just keep circling back to basically the point of like, why, you know? I think we will hear a little bit about this, like very little bit about this, a few comics down the road, but um, there's no indication that Biddy likes hockey up to this point. What he gets out of it is uh, unknown to the reader. The one comic we've had so far, you know, the the hockey shit comic that's basically about, like, the culture and how fun it is, Biddy is not in that comic. And I think, you know, what it means to him and why he wants to subject himself to, like, conscious disrupting terror every fucking day of his life for four years in a row is... I don't know, when you put it that way, it's just kind of like, what are you goddamn doing here? 
why? One thing about me that's different from, I think, a, a lot of people who are on the critical side of this comic is like, there are many things that I just don't care about. Like, I think the question of would somebody with the profile that's being attributed to Betty, where he's highly skilled because he's a figure skater, but he just avoids all contact and doesn't actually play hockey, would that person ever end up on a team like this? It's like, yeah, no, of course a person like that wouldn't end up on a team like this. That's what makes it a work of fiction. Wouldn't happen in the real world. So let's, you know, go through the exercise of asking ourselves, what would happen if somebody like this ended up on a team like this? That's the exercise of like telling a story, writing a story. What if a clown was doing murders? In terms of just the question of like, why is Biddy here? Why does he want, why does he want to push himself into this? I sort of feel like... Well, that's a little more important than just like the setup because it's his motivation. And I think the success of like following his journey probably has a lot to do with like what it was that he expected to get out of this. And I think part of what I'm trying to interrogate for myself vis-a-vis this comic is just like, do I believe in Biddy as a character? Do I feel like he has motivations? Is he successfully pushing me along? on a journey that I'm able to get invested in. Yeah, I mean, I think you bring up a really important question, right? Which is the question of realism. And I think it's important for a couple reasons, in part because it becomes very contentious whether or not this comic is realistic, or at least in my experience of the fandom, it became extremely contentious. Uh, which is how I became an edgelord, but we can revisit that at some other time. So I think there's a certain amount of stretching in the sort of premise of the comic that I don't mind, right? I also don't mind that Biddy in real life might not end up on a team like this. I don't mind that some people played uh, in juniors and like would never have been allowed to play in the NCAA, whatever. For me, that's, I'm willing to accept it. I'm willing to stretch the rules in those ways because it's part of the rules of this universe. The rules of this universe say, and when I say rules of the universe, I guess I mean the kind of like, rules of reality that the comic sets up for itself, like most pieces of fiction set up for themselves at the beginning. What can I expect from this world? What am I gonna look at this world? This is how like sci-fi gets away with all sorts of crazy stuff because of the beginning of the story, the author's like, look at this crazy shit that happens. And you as the reader are like, I guess crazy shit can happen in this universe, that's cool. Um, and in this universe, I believe in magical realism pies and I believe in like, I don't know, John Johnson, the goalie, because they're set up early enough that I I understand that that's part of the fabric of the universe that this comic is operating in. And in this universe, Biddy makes it onto this team, so that's fine. It's when a piece of fiction starts to push on its own rules, and we and we can talk about what I mean by rules. I guess as we go forward, I mean lots of different things in this particular case. Um, but it's when a piece of fiction starts to push on its own sort of like pacing rules, characterization rules, setting rules, world building rules, etc. that I think cognitive dissonance starts to creep in. And that's where my sort of like, I, I maintain that I'm not particularly critical of this comic in the way that some people in the OMGCP critical tag feel because I like this comic. I'm actually really into a lot of the characters. I don't feel angry all the time about all of it. 
although I respect when people do and I'm not, you know, I'm not like wagging my finger about it. I just happen to, to not feel that way about uh, the whole comic. The end is a different matter and we can talk about that when we get there. But I do think there's something in the way that the, the comic right, sets up its own expectations and Biddy's expectations and motivations as a character and then pushes on them. And that's where we kind of get this like shift as well, maybe. I will build on what you're saying about the fandom and just reiterate that like, I am very angry and very salty and very edgelordish about a lot of things within this comic, but they're usually like when the comic betrays itself rather than just like, oh, the comic invented something that I don't personally like. Again, fiction is fiction for a reason. You bring up a preposterous situation to make a cartoon about, I don't know, seems fine to me. I definitely feel like people go way too hard about things. I do also empathize. I think those are people who have been really disappointed, not just in this comic, although they certainly have, and I think they certainly deserve to feel that way, but in a larger media sphere and in a world that has set them up to be frustrated by certain things that they thought wouldn't be reiterated in this comic, and then they are, and like, that's angry making. One thing I will say uh, to go back to a point you made earlier about Ngozi and like speculating on Ngozi. On one hand, I do feel like it's not really fair and also perhaps not really productive to try to speculate on, you know, personal motivations or biographical details or wonder about things that maybe you wouldn't want people to speculate about you necessarily. I try not to do that. I try not to do a kind of like, you know, biographical analysis of what's happening. At the same time, I do feel like, well, this is the author and the author's decision-making process is the comic. And obviously the author is going to be, you know, influenced and impacted by the comics reception and the socio-political and socio-economic and ideological context that they're living through. And I don't know, I feel like, you know, decisions made by the author start to bear down upon the narrative. And at a certain point, it starts to become difficult to pull those two things apart. Well, I, I mean, I agree, right? Like there are certain, there's a certain point at which I think I will definitely want to talk about my perception of Ngozi's relationship to the fandom and kind of how that manifests in the narrative. For me, it's just really important to remember that Ngozi is a real person and there are things that I just don't really feel comfortable speculating about. And similarly, that the characters of this comic, even though we talk about them as though they're people for shorthand purposes, really, they're fictional. They don't have agency. They can't make choices. So when we talk about, we can talk about in universe, like a particular character and their feelings and motivations. But I do always want to remember that those, that they are, they are creations of a person. And so 
it's important to me to be able to talk about, yes, absolutely, the author's choices and how those choices like end up shaping what happens and why the context of the author matters. I just like also to remember who is a real person and who is not, which is sometimes not a thing that is easy to do when the major contact you have with an author is through their work. And, and especially with through their work that you have a long relationship with that you care deeply about whose characters you have almost a personal relationship with because you spent so long with them. But I agree. I think there, it's important to talk about an author's context, the context in which the comic is being written and why that might have led the narrative to go down certain paths. I guess maybe like the most simplistic way to put it would be something like, it's unfair to be mean, but it's okay to be critical. Yeah. And criticism is about putting things into context. It's often negative or at least, you know, evaluative, but it's not about personal beef or bad intentions because you're acting on your own emotions absent other concerns for the artwork. Criticism is about putting something into context so that you can come to understand the work better and alongside it understand comparable works, understand the readership, understand the culture that produced us. I mean, I'm very invested in getting to the bottom of who are these characters and why. That's why I want to write fan fiction. But I think the sort of subtext of being critical is to try to get at larger truths about why check please is and what check please is and how it's interconnected in a vastly wider social and textual world whereas meanness is a different thing that is somewhat more personal and i don't mean that you ought not be personal in the sense that it's wrong to approach a work in terms of affect if I have an emotional response to check, please, I think that's valid. But to make it criticism rather than meanness is about placing it within context and coming from a position of, I felt like this and I'll tell you more about it rather than just like, this is a piece of garbage. Let's burn the house down. Right, exactly. And I will also say that criticism online generally, certainly in fandoms over the past, I would say increasingly over the past few years, but probably always. And definitely in this particular fandom, what it means to be critical of something has been slippery. And that is in part because of Ngozi's relationship to the fandom and the way that Ngozi wants people to interact with her work, not just her, but her work and what is appropriate or what is considered appropriate by whom and when and how, right? And what to say um, about a particular piece. Because I think that you're right, that criticism is evaluative. 
And that's a process that isn't just, I liked this, I didn't like it. It's, I like this because, or I didn't like this because, or I thought about this because, right? There's that because component. You can really tell I'm a writing teacher, I'm sorry. But I think that that's a really important part of the project of criticism and also something that has been difficult to engage with for this particular comic in ways that are not, that's not the case in the other fandoms I personally have been part of. Um, And I think that's probably because of the relationship that Ngozi has with the internet more broadly, the fact that it's a relatively smaller fandom, but it's a smaller fandom written by someone who is not, you know, like a mainstream media sort of like millionaire or whatever versus I'm thinking like South Park, right? South Park is not a small little webcomic that could, right? It's a completely different kind of media franchise. Even if it started out as like a little TV show that could, it didn't stay that way. Yeah, actually what's interesting about South Park to, uh, surprise, now you're in a South Park podcast, suck my dick. The thing about South Park is, uh, you want to know what, it, it did start actually as this little thing that could. It started basically as like a little, you know, a few minute long construction paper animation that just like these two guys who had some industry connections, but certainly were not especially like prolific and wealthy, just kind of like put together. And I think, you know, they had the benefit of doing that within a media environment where there was no chance that they would be exposed to the feedback of their thing in such a way that it would like directly impact their like will to continue. It is an interesting comparison to me because I've spent so much time in the South Park fandom and so much time thinking about it. And it's just like, you can say whatever the fuck you want about South Park. And it's just like the two dudes who make it. And it really is just two dudes who make it. I mean, they have a staff obviously, but Trey and Matt, they are not ever, ever, ever going to fucking hear me and my friends on the internet making jokes about how they're, you know, almost dead, no, I'm on the inside, and their show is a trash fire, and I'd love to just whip out my dick and pee on it. And like whatever else I've said about South Park over the years, I don't think I've said all of those things. I definitely have said that they're dead inside. It's just like, I feel very comfortable making those criticisms because they're not gonna be exposed to it. I would try to tonally temper what I said about Chuck Please because I do know that people's feelings are involved in a way that they're not involved with a lot of like larger, less personal, more corporate feeling media. At the same time, I do feel like well, Chuck Please is a commodity that's been put into the marketplace. It's an artwork, art is an economy. I'm sorry, but like the leverage that the consumer has or the viewer has or the reader has, however you want to think about it, is the ability to engage with it critically. And by far, the vast majority of that engagement has been positive. So as long as you're not adding, you know, at Ngozi, you know, you're dead inside or whatever, I'm sure you could get much meaner. I'm like, I'm sorry. I I just feel like you have to allow the concrete or even just the crit 
to exist alongside the artwork. And the privilege of being the author is that you are under no obligation to expose yourself to or heed any of that criticism. I used to argue with this about people in fucking fandom about like on-crit fanfic reviews, where it's like, listen, you as the author have the power to not give a shit that somebody said they don't like your fanfic or they wish you'd written X, Y, and Z. Like that is the power that you have. Somebody posts like, oh, in the next chapter, will you blah, 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 I didn't like this. Fucking ignore them or tell them you won't. You're in charge, you are the author. And I feel like so much of this is muddled up and a lot of it gets lost when talking about check plays, but that's how I feel. Yep, we talked about fandom and I think we'll probably end up coming back to it quite a bit because I really do think that it, it bears down on the next hundred comics. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I also, I have been in quite a few fandoms, but almost always, I mean, listen, I'm drawn to very low budget genre TV and high budget and very stupid genre movies. So that's what I have tended to be in fandom for. And those people are absolutely paying attention more and more to their, to their fandoms, right? Because they have realized that, oh, this is a whole group of people who will spend money on shit if we're like, look at this Captain America t-shirt we made or whatever, right? I've been part of these larger corporate franchises where people are absolutely, somebody is paying attention to the fanfic that people are writing, the things that people are talking about online, but they're paying attention to it not in a personal way at all. It's either how do we convince people that like Captain America is not gay actually, or how do we get them to spend money on like whatever it is that we're trying to shill this week, right? How do we get this group of, of passionate fans to like come to our con and pay $75 for a photo of us or whatever it is that they're trying to do? So it's a completely different and much more transactional relationship versus Ngozi, who wasn't making money at the beginning, even if she was making money at the end. And so there's this very different trajectory of interaction. It's transactional, but it becomes transactional in a different way. And the consequences of becoming transactional are emotionally different than when you're like, well, Kevin, what's his face? Like, made another Marvel movie that I'm going to pay $17 to see because I'm a sucker and my friends want to go. I think we're probably going to spend a lot of time sort of ruminating on and working out these issues. I am glad that we got some of this context out. I'm sure we'll revisit this topic. Honestly, I think that's all I have to say about the coaches. Anything you want to throw in? Any, any lingering thoughts on the coaches or... I don't have any good thoughts right now except thinking about Jack and Pity getting killed by a clown in Maine. It's not good. It could be very funny if it was played basically just like these two characters coming in from another franchise where that certainly doesn't happen. I'm not here to write actual clown murder fanfic. So there, there would be like a ridiculous chase scene and I'm sure Biddy would yell at Jack and I'd probably be very satisfied by that. So that's, that's sort of where I am. So in conclusion, I have nothing to offer. All right, okay. Well, I think we'll just have to decide later on if all of this is going to make the cuts or if it's going to be edited out. Uh, I have been secret. And I'm, for better or worse, tomato greens. And uh, this has been Check Displeased, the 
podcast where we spill the tea about the creators of South Park. And we will see you next episode, episode five, where we go to strip 1.4 and visit for the first time the house. I'm very excited. Yeah, I we'll see. We'll see. I mentioned I was horny for some comics. We're getting there. <laughs> We're leaving our way there. Love it. Great podcast. Yeah.